Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it is brilliant on such a bizarre day that culture continues. Um, and I can't think of a better organisation with whom to continue cultural activity than Pindrop. Um, the relationship between Pindrop and the Royal Academy started in 2014. Uh, they're a visionary organisation that want to take literature into, well, I'm not saying the parts that literature hasn't reached before, but into different contexts. And we're delighted always to work with them. Um, sometimes uh, writers come to the Royal Academy and read extracts from their work in a kind of oddly symbiotic or creatively poetic relationship to what's on in the main galleries. But sometimes we just like to host good writing, great writing, emerging writing. And it's interesting at the moment that the summer exhibition has opened next door. A young emerging talent is just about to open upstairs, David Hockney. <laughs> and the schools have just opened their final degree show, the only free postgraduate art school in Britain. That's the only puff I'm going to do for the Academy, but it's something that we're very proud of. So actually, it's great that the short story competition that uh, Pindrop initiated last year, uh, I think it does many things, but I think the idea of exploring and celebrating emerging talent is, is one of its prime motivations. So it's wonderful that the context is, is um, with the Academy's final degree show and summer exhibition. The format for the evening is, in a minute, I'm going to invite the uh, the... I was going to say the parents of Pindrop, but the, the illustrious visionaries who set the whole thing up and with whom we want to have an ongoing relationship to introduce what's going to happen. But you will very shortly um, know who the winning writer is. Um, we're delighted that Juliet Stevenson is going to read the winning short story. And afterwards, if the writer is up for it, we might have a little conversation. Um, there'll be one or two issues to kick around between ourselves anyway, but then we'll all have a, a drink Celebratory, I suppose, because culture goes on, and some of you may be celebrating what happened today, but some of us might be trying to numb the pain. Anyway, <laughs> without further ado, can you join me in welcoming to the stage Elizabeth Day and Simon Oldfield. Thank you, Tim. And yes, what a day. It's momentous in so many ways. Um, and of course, most momentously so, because we are here for this award. So uh, yes, great. Thank you, the Royal Academy, for hosting this. Um, I'm Simon Oldfield, um, co-founder of Pinjob. This is Elizabeth Day, my co-founder. Um, and together, we formed Pinjob to showcase great short fiction. And our partnership with the Royal Academy has really blossomed and is really testament to a great, rich, and fruitful collaboration. The award, the success of the award, is there to reflect the kind of ethos of the summer exhibition. It's open submission, it's open to everyone, and this year we received entries from all around the world, and the quality has been extremely high. We've had over, I think, 260 was the final count, and we've got that down to a fantastic shortlist of 20, and now a great, great shortlist of six. Um, and it really is sort of fantastic to have you all here this evening. You're one of you going to find out who's the winner. I feel awful still standing here knowing the, knowing the result. Um, but uh, thank you very much for submitting your stories, and thank you for giving us six magnificent shortlisted stories. And thank you very much, Juliet Stevenson, for being here tonight. It really is an honour to have you presenting the award. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just great to have you here and listen in a moment to uh, you reading the winning short story, so thank you. 
Um, and before I hand you over to Elizabeth, who's going to just go through the list of shortlisted stories and welcome Juliet to the stage, I'd like to thank Audible who have uh, supported the event and thank all of you for being here and thank you shortlisted authors. Congratulations. As Simon touched on there, when we co-founded Pindrop, it was with the idea of bringing the short story to a whole new audience in a whole new way. Um, it was a very modest idea to start with, but it really took off. And now here we are in this glorious room about to have a prize-winning story read aloud to us by one of the defining actresses of her generation, Juliet Stevenson. <laughs> it's a real honour to be here tonight to celebrate something that is a communal act. Reading to oneself, like writing, is, however wonderful, a solitary pastime. Being read aloud to in a room full of people like this is about connection, human connection. It's about what brings us together rather than what sets us apart. And today of all days, I think we should celebrate that. It's such a pleasure to announce this shortlist because it showcased a dazzling array of talent. Every entry was a glittering treasure. The writers transported us from the atmospheric drizzle of British seaside coastal towns to the strange beauty of rural Japan. We tasted vinegary fish and chips and the sweetness of mountainside strawberries. We met confused schoolchildren and former lovers. We were introduced to love in all its forms, sustaining but sometimes warped, lost and then found again. It was an immense privilege for us to read such stunning stories, and I want to thank every one of the shortlisted authors for being so generous with their work. I'd also like to congratulate the winner, who, even in such a competitive field, was unanimously decided. The shortlist is Barney Walsh for Under the Waves, Catherine McNamara for Pia Tortora, Kathy Thomas for Fish and Chips Season, Claire Fuller for A Quiet, Tidy Man, Kirsten Zhang for Mountain Strawberries, and Melanie Whitman for Silent as Storks. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Juliet Stevenson to the stage to announce the winner and to read it aloud to us. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I feel a little bit odd about this, having spent the whole night up watching people standing on platforms <laughs> announcing results. Um, I feel a bit like a returning officer for the constituency of the Royal Academy. Um, and my heart goes out to all those people who are waiting for the result. But I am very, very happy and privileged to be here to do this. And uh, the winner of the Pindrop Short Story Award for 2016 is Claire Fuller for her short story, A Quiet, Tidy Man. Many congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. And now here is her wonderful story. A Quiet, Tidy Man by Claire Fuller. 
Before everything changed, my siblings and I liked to canter our horses across the lawn in front of the house. Their hooves would turn over great clods of turf, and my stepfather, Charles Grubb, would follow at a safe distance to stamp the grass back into place. Phyllis, my middle sister, once led her horse into our entrance hall and encouraged it to tackle the stairs. Charles, who happened to be walking past with an uniced Christmas cake, only raised an eyebrow and returned a few minutes later with a shovel and bucket for the manure which the horse had left along the patterned runner. Charles accepted us and our house and the way we lived because he was in love with our mother and had been ever since he saw her at the county gymkhana when they were both 17. He'd been too shy to declare himself then and so had waited while she married our father, produced first me and my twin sister Joyce, then another child, and then two more. Charles's patience paid off because when our father died unexpectedly, Charles was on hand to step in. Our mother inhabited an unstructured world where homeschooling was often forgotten for weeks and mess and dirt went unnoticed. But there were six horses and five children to feed, electricity bills to pay, and a stable roof to reslate. So she married Charles Grubb on the understanding that she didn't have to take his second name, the idea of which caused a scandal among our neighbors. When she and I walked into the village post office, I was aware of the silence that fell. But my mother was oblivious. She swept her cape around her, taking up more than her share of the available space and dislodging curling postcards of the church font and dusty packets of custard powder. I've been Marjorie Bird since my first marriage, my mother said in her booming voice to the postmistress, Mrs. Mardle. I may have caught a grub, but there's no need to become one. <laughs> and she would laugh at her own joke. As well as trailing after the horses, Charles cleaned up after us in the house, which was old and broken and had a kitchen which was sometimes flooded by the Thames. We children didn't use our own bedrooms, but slept wherever the fancy took us or sleep overcame us. And consequently, all our clothes, books, and toys were left wherever we dropped them. Yet another girl from the village who did for my mother had resigned, this one citing feral children, animal droppings trodden into rugs, and ducks paddling through the kitchen as her reasons for leaving. And so our stepfather took to carrying, to carrying a willow trug that he found discarded in the orangery. He picked up single shoes, empty teacups, and damp towels as he wandered through the house, placing them in his basket and amiably matching them with their partners or returning them to where they belonged. Charles had arrived in our house with a portmanteau, a great deal of money, and a silver-topped cane engraved with the letters CCG. He allowed my youngest sibling, Clementina, to look at it, and one evening at the dinner table, she asked what the C stood for. What a ridiculous question, our mother said. C is for Charles. Oh, cabbages, said Thomas, one up from Clementina. C is for Christ, said Phyllis, who was going through a religious phase. 
Constipation, said Thomas, laughing and spilling potato from his mouth. Cardboard cutout, he shouted. Curds, <laughs> custard face. Thomas, said our mother. I caught Joyce's eye and we both looked away, hiding smiles. At 15, we were supposed to set an example. Charles held his hands up to quieten us. You mean my middle name, don't you, dear? It also begins with a C. It was Joyce's turn to start laughing. Creepy crawly grub, she exclaimed. The table was in an uproar and we abandoned dinner. Then one night, when we were least expecting it, our lives changed forever. No one discovered what time Charles went into the stables or why. My mother and he had separate bedrooms and she said she'd taken a sleeping draught and didn't hear a thing. It was poor Phyllis who discovered him. She told us she'd been worried her pony might catch a chill in the first January snowfall. So before the sun had even risen, she went to the stables with a candle and nearly tripped over Charles, lying on the brick floor, his pale face haloed by the dark circle of blood. A scream pierced the sleeping house so that we were all awake at once, running in every direction in our nightclothes and our bare feet. Finally, Joyce put on her shoes and went to the village doctor who called an ambulance to come and take Charles away. For the whole of that day, with no news from our mother, the five of us huddled around a fire I had lit in the drawing room, eating savoury crackers with apricot jam, going over the events of the previous evening. Whose footsteps had crept past Joyce's door just after midnight? What had Thomas heard our mother say to herself in the pantry? And who had been the last person to see Charles? Phyllis, too big for Joyce's lap, but perching there like a cuckoo, could only cling to her sister's neck and sob. Joyce stroked the child's face until she was able to tell us that although all the horses had been locked in their stalls, when she had held the candle aloft over Charles's face, she had seen the semicircular stamp of a horseshoe on his forehead. Charles lay in a coma for 59 days. Our mother visited him every third day, getting a lift to the hospital in the post van. The passenger seat had been removed, so my mother nestled herself down like a giant tweedy hen amongst the sacks of letters and parcels. By the time she got home, she was too tired to give us much news about how our stepfather was progressing. On the 60th day, Charles woke up, although we didn't learn it from our mother. Joyce had sent me to the post office for gravy browning, where I heard Mrs. Mardle talking to a customer. They didn't see me, crouching behind a tall pile of sandbags, listening. The poor man opened his eyes and sat straight up, pulled out his tubes and whatnot, and demanded to go home, just like that. No, said the customer, sucking her teeth. Yes, true as I'm standing here. He's changed, you know. Mrs. Mardle paused for effect and then continued in a loud whisper. They say you wouldn't know him, and such a kind man he used to be. 
Coins chinked on the glass counter, and there was the click of a purse closing. He used to come to the shop to buy his cigarettes, always happy to pass the time of day. Oh, yes, said the customer in an encouraging tone. A lovely man. Well, not any longer. He's been shouting filth at Marjorie Grubb. Marjorie Bird, corrected the customer, but Mrs. Mardle continued talking. Demanding to see the doctors at all hours, ordering the nurses about. He's got my Nancy running around after him like he's the only patient on the ward. Forgetting the gravy browning, I hurried out and down the lane to tell the news to Joyce. As I looked over my shoulder, I saw Mrs. Mardle and the customer craning their necks across the fancy goods in the window, their mouths open like hungry fledglings. Two days later, we found out for ourselves how Charles had changed when our mother brought him home. As soon as he limped through the front door, we crowded around him, all talking at once, asking how he was feeling. He ignored us and pushed through to the hall stand where his cane was resting. He grabbed it by the bottom end and swung it, and like a shot put, the weight of the handle spun him around. The silver head of the cane struck flesh. Clementina, the nearest to him, got the full force of the blow across the back of her thighs. Quiet! All of you! Charles bellowed. We were so shocked to hear him raise his voice that we were suddenly silent, even Clementina, and in unison took a step backwards. I will not have such behavior in my house! Charles pointed at me. You, boy, help me into the drawing room. And you, girl, he reached forward and prodded Joyce with a cane, fetch me my slippers. Charles, leaning heavily on my shoulder, limped into the drawing room and indicated that he wished to sit by the fire. As he sagged backwards with a groan, I saw the pink curve of the scar on his forehead. And when Joyce came in with his slippers and she and I exchanged a look, disbelief and incomprehension. From that moment on, and for the next eight months, Charles dictated and we obeyed. We were all called boy or girl, as if there were only two children in the house. We hid from him and for the first time kept to our own rooms and didn't dare to leave anything lying around. On rare occasions, we were given a glimpse of the old Charles, a quick wink and a smile, as if it were all a big joke. But then his face would again turn stony. We whispered in the corners, and like ghosts, we slunk along the corridors. An apathy came over us, and we almost gave up riding altogether. In the mornings, we simply turned the horses out into the paddock, where they bunched together, shivering at their sudden change in circumstances. Our mother, too, was an altered woman. It seemed that everything she said or did was to placate Charles. On Saturday evenings, she sent me up to the lamb and lion for a pint of stout, a few spoonfuls of which she stirred into his Welsh rabbit. But too often, melted cheese and slices of toast would be hurled into the drawing room fire. Once, as she left the room, I saw her uncurl her fists, revealing red crescents which her fingernails had cut into her palms. 
But the way Charles broke her was to make her change her name. Marjorie Bird became Marjorie Grubb, dumb, passive, and infinitely smaller. If Charles saw us creeping about the house, the best we could hope for was that we wouldn't be made to scrub at the tide mark around the kitchen walls or empty the mouse traps in the attic. Worse would be a slap on the back of the head for just passing by, or most terrifying of all, a beating with the cane. My siblings and I often met in the furthest stall in the stables, and with the comforting smells of hay and warm horses about us, we compared atrocities and punishments, tended wounds and dried each other's tears. One afternoon in early November, Clementina ran in crying. She flung herself onto the hay and refused to talk until Thomas, Phyllis and I had gone off for a desultory ride. Eventually, with much cajoling from Joyce, Clem revealed her backside and told my twin sister what had happened, who later related it to me. Clementina, put in charge of shoe polishing, had forgotten to buff with a soft cloth. She'd been summoned by Charles to the drawing room and made to bend over the arm of a wing-backed chair. Clementina, knowing what was coming, shut her eyes, gripped the upholstery and gritted her teeth. Charles pulled down her knickers. Her muscles tensed, waiting for the sting of the cane. It didn't come. Instead, she heard him poke at the fire in the grate. Then he was beside her, and once again she readied herself for the beating. His hand stroked one of her exposed cheeks, down one leg and up the other. This is what little girls get for not cleaning shoes properly, said Charles. And he pressed the end of his silver cane, heated by the fire, into the flesh of her bottom. Joyce told me in the stable that afternoon that she had smoothed horse ointment across Clementina's skin and the clear imprint of the reversed initials C, C, G. It was Joyce who came up with the plan. Younger than me by ten minutes, but sharper and more practical, she told me it when we were peeling vegetables in the scullery. We have to kill him, she said, just like that, with a potato in one hand and a knife in the other. The decision to do it was simple. How was the onerous part? Joyce and I discussed the options endlessly. An air rifle pellet in his head, pushing him off the church tower, drowning him in the river. Phyllis heard us one night arguing in whispers about whether we could steal the post van, run Charles over, and get it back in time for the next day's delivery. She told Clementina, who in turn blabbed to Thomas, and so when we all met next in the stables, Joyce's idea had become a plan without any of us really discussing it. Cut out his heart, said Phyllis. It's the only way. I could strangulate him, said Thomas, putting his hands around his own throat and rolling around on the floor, making choking noises. Don't be silly, said Phyllis. Your hands aren't big enough to kill a grown man. They are too, 
Thomas sat up and held out his hands. They were remarkably large for an eight-year-old's. Suffocation, whispered Clementina, who had buried herself up to her neck in hay. Hanging's too good for him, I chipped in. It was a phrase I had heard without quite knowing what it meant. A sharp blow to the temple might do it, said Joyce, leaning over the partition to stroke her horse. Three bones join at the side of your face. It's a very vulnerable spot. I wondered where she got her information. Electrocution, shouted Thomas, falling backwards and jerking his body around. I laughed, but when Joyce said, Thomas, she sounded so like our mother, I stopped. We all sat quietly for a while, thinking, or in my case, thinking what Joyce might be thinking. I know, she said finally, we'll all do all of it together, all at once. Then they won't know who killed him, and none of us will face the long drop. The long drop, I said, my voice wavering. Well, of course. There are bound to be consequences. This is murder we're talking about. I can honestly say that up until that point, I hadn't thought of it as ending someone's life. I'd simply seen it as a new beginning. There was silence again while we all contemplated our future. Children don't get hanged, said Thomas suddenly. They get sent to Borstal. Well, the boys do anyway. I don't know what they do with the girls. And then with a relief at the one sensible thing Thomas had said that week, we were all talking at once. And so in the afternoon, the plan was made and we went in to wash our hands for tea. Charles liked his household to follow a clear and set routine. We all had our duties. We all knew when breakfast, lunch, tea and dinner were served. And if we weren't already sitting at the table with our fingernails scrubbed and our hair combed when he limped in, there would be trouble. After dinner, Charles retired to the drawing room to read his ironed newspaper. Then at a quarter past 10, my mother lent him her shoulder and they walked slowly up the stairs. She helped him change into his pajamas, gave him a cup of cocoa, and we children formed a line to peck his whiskered cheek. 13 minutes later, my mother went back upstairs to help him use the chamber pot, plump his pillows, and turn out the light. By quarter past 11, Charles was snoring. I knew this because for two weeks I'd watched it through the crack in his bedroom door. His routine was unfailing. We decided to put our plan into action on the night of the 22nd of December. The five of us went to bed as usual, but I lay in my room listening to every sound the old house made. Each creak and rattle was Charles coming to denounce me as a murderer. Every gurgle in the pipes was the rumbling stomach of the policeman pressing his ear against my door. For hours I lay there, hoping everyone had fallen asleep and wouldn't wake until morning. But at 2.30, the girls tiptoed into my bedroom, followed by Thomas. Clementina perched on a chair. I miss the old Charles she whispered. The old Charles is gone, said Phyllis coldly. Couldn't we knock this one on the head and bring him back? No, said Joyce. This is the only way.
And I knew then we were really going to do it. In single file, we crept along the corridor to Charles's bedroom. Inside, it was dark. Only a pale moon glowed through the curtains. We tried to be quiet, but there were shuffles and bumps as we got into position. Charles didn't stir. One, two, three, hissed Joyce. At once there was a jumble, tumble, flailing of bodies and bedclothes as arms and legs and pillows, leaking feathers, fell upon the man on the bed. And we children pressed a last lungful of breath down and out. And large horse-riding hands squeezed like a stopper and a moonlit hammer flashed whilst my penknife jerked and twitched into a dead man. It was over much faster than I'd anticipated, and with much less mess. In no time at all, I was back in my own bed, lying in the dark, heart racing. Now, the house's night noises became even more sinister, and Charles's ghost creaked the floorboards and billowed the curtains. All night, I lay awake, and when the sun rose, I steeled myself for our mother's screams. They never came. Instead, I heard her voice in Joyce's room, calm and measured. And then a few moments later, shoes clattering down the stairs, the front door opening and slamming. Fifteen minutes later, I joined Phyllis, Thomas and Clementina as we hung over the landing balustrade, watching a deathly pale Joyce take the doctor's coat and lead him up the stairs into Charles's room, where our mother waited. After all those dragging night hours, everything happened in a rush. Phyllis shut the front door in the face of a police photographer when she thought he was a reporter from the Oxford Courier. Two sergeants arrived with moustaches and notebooks. Our mother fainted, and the doctor brought her round with smelling salts. And finally, at lunchtime, an ambulance came up the drive. But he's dead, said Thomas. It's to take his body to the mortuary for a post-mortem, said Joyce, her words sounding tinny. So they can look at his insides, said Phyllis. Clementina, sitting on the bottom step of the staircase, gave a shudder. Joyce pulled her out of the way as two uniformed men struggled down with a covered stretcher. We went into the kitchen to make ham sandwiches. We were questioned, of course, individually and with our mother. No one seemed to know what to do with us. There was some talk of Borstal and the girls being boarded out, but our mother refused to let us go. If we had expected life to return to how it was before Charles was knocked on the head, we were mistaken. We moped around the house and made a half-hearted attempt to celebrate Christmas. Thomas and I went into the woods and spent an afternoon in the rain, hacking at a fir tree with a blunt axe. Eventually, knowing we were beaten, we dragged home a fallen branch, which we propped up in the hall and decorated with the five white doves, which had stood on last year's Christmas cake. For a week, the hall was filled with the woodlice which crawled out from under the branches' rotten bark. We were in limbo, waiting for the inquest, the outcome of which would seal our fate. Then, when the Christmas holiday was over and a date had been set, 
We were told that, like much of the county, the court had been flooded and the inquest was postponed. Whilst my siblings and I mopped water from the kitchen floor, our mother took to her bed and refused to see anyone but the doctor. He happened to play bridge with the coroner's cousin, and at his intervention, the inquest was arranged to take place in the village hall at the top of our lane. Phyllis, in a yellow sou'wester, instead of riding her pony, with the rest of us trudging behind, our mother leaning tiredly on her dead husband's cane. Who does Phyllis think she is? Clementina asked me under our shared umbrella. Joan of Arc, I said. Over the past month, Phyllis's studies had focused exclusively on martyrs. As we entered the little balcony that had been reserved for us, the crowd below turned en masse and looked up. Mrs. Mardle, sitting in the front row, dabbed at her eyes with a handkerchief and shook her head. On a podium at the front of the stage, the coroner coughed and the audience turned back to face him and was silent. A thin man stepped out from the shadows and started speaking in a monotone. An inquest held for our sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth II, in the village of Little Whittlenham in Wharfingham Rural District, United Kingdom of Great Britain, on the 10th day of January in the year 1957, by the grace of God before William Payne, coroner at law of our said lady, the Queen, for the county of Oxfordshire, on view of the death of Charles Carew Grubb. Creepy crawly grub, said Clementina under her breath as the man droned on. Within the jurisdiction of the said coroner, I have to admit, my mind wandered, and it wasn't until I heard the shuffling of 30 pairs of Wellington boots below that I realized the doctor was about to speak. Yes, he had been called to the house where he found the deceased in bed. Yes, he had telephoned for the police. Yes, he had signed the death certificate. Get on with it, I whispered. The doctor strode off into the wings. I have before me, the coroner said in a reedy voice, the post-mortem report on Charles Grubb, late of this parish. He splayed his hands over a thick sheaf of papers. Although the deceased appears to have received several wounds, the report clearly states that these were inflicted after death occurred. The coroner hacked loudly and wiped his mouth with a grey handkerchief. Charles Grubb died from an overdose of tincture of opium, more commonly known as laudanum, likely to have been administered in the cocoa he drank before he retired to bed. A collective gasp came up from the people in the hall. Only our mother was silent. At the front, Mrs. Mardle stood and turned towards us. Marjorie Grubb, she accused, pointing her finger at our mother. Again, all the heads looked around. Our mother rose up. My name is Marjorie Bird, she bellowed. And the little balcony and the people of our village trembled as one by one, first me, then Clementina, Phyllis, Thomas, and lastly Joyce, stood up beside her and stared back.
We were, thank you. Just want to say thank you very much. That was amazing. I got another round of applause thing for Juliet. Thank you very much. Claire, this is totally unfair because you, you didn't know you'd won. So not only do we then expect you to come onto the stage to talk about the story, but you've also... I'd imagine heard it read publicly for the first time and read in such a, a beautiful way. Uh, I guess the first thing I just wanted to ask you, I mean, we'll talk about the story in a minute, but does it feel remote from you to hear Juliet read it? Does it feel something different to that which you felt you owned maybe an hour and a half ago? Yeah, really, really different. Because... Juliet's voices were so amazing and and when I read it to myself or read it aloud to myself it's 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 all one voice I'm not an actor <laughs> so so to hear it kind of read in that way is, is very different and and amazing yeah and no complaints no, no okay, complaints. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth made the point beautiful at the beginning that actually reading is a solitary activity therefore this is I mean, this is, I'd say, unnatural. It's just different. Yeah. But I wonder how it is for you hearing your words read publicly in a room where people are also hearing your story for the first time. I mean, I know that visual artists claim sometimes to sneak around their exhibitions as sort of anonymously watching people look at what they've done. <laughs> but it's usually not something a writer can do. No. Um, so I was in that reading kind of aware of things that I still wanted to change because a piece of writing is kind of never finished and so I was I guess also aware of people hearing that story in the way that I was hearing it and kind of thinking oh I should have changed that word or that word but um is yeah it, it is odd to know that people are hearing that story yeah it's quite interesting when 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 we read them, first of all, we're, we're in our back of our minds, we're thinking how this is going to be in sound when it's read aloud, which is one of the key parts of the award. It's a short story award, but we're, we're, you know, a story that's going to be read aloud mm. and the success of it in that context. And, of course, uh, you don't know who's necessarily going to read it. And then when we learned Juliet was going to read it as well, I, could, I started imagining certain ways it might be read. And, um, of course, it's entirely different from that and much better than I could have imagined. <laughs> but it is interesting to, to hear it read aloud because, of course, we put these... You know, we read them in our heads and I sort of know roughly what we're looking for. And I know that Tim and Elizabeth, when they were reading them, were looking for something similar as well. And all of the short stories that were shortlisted have that quality. And they, um, but there's something very different when they are in love, particularly when there's a lot of dialogue and there are a lot of characters. It brings mm. something to life in a very different way, I think. Um, and your stories have a lot of that, or your story had a lot of that, and, and some very clear imagery as well, which was, I think, very successful in, in this particular story. I think, I think a story that's going to be read aloud compared to a story that's going to be read on paper, mm. you do have to consider them as two different things. Because a, a story on paper, you can, if you don't quite get something, you can, it's easy, obviously, to go back and reread. Um, or to say, oh, who is that character? And, and go and look back. Mm. But listening to a story, obviously, you can't do that at all. So I think when you're writing it, you do have to be aware of that, that it's... Uh, it has to flow, and having kind of five, five children and two adults was was perhaps a little bit risky. But but I also kind of thought that maybe, even if you couldn't tell the difference between all five, they kind of, they could have just been one. Mm. We certainly gave a challenge to Juliet. She had many more voices yes. to do than she <laughs> might have done. I, I, I mean, I think all uh, creative individuals would 
at some stage think that they might make changes to things when they've been submitted or they're finished. But I think one of the things that struck us about your story was how taught it was and how um, polished, I, I mean, polished in, in the best possible sense. I mean, there was a, it, there's, there's a wonderful structure to it. It didn't, it, I, I had no sense as I read it that, that things needed changing or editing. Are you um, a perfectionist? Do you edit yourself rigorously or did, was deadline something on this that actually meant that you did have to submit it quite, in quite a rushed uh, way? It didn't have that feel at all, but yeah. I'm just conscious of you saying that you would have changed things having heard it read publicly now. I'm, I, I'm a big editor. I, uh, you know, with whatever I'm writing, maybe the writing is a third of it and the editing is two thirds of it. So, you know, you kind of get the first draft down and then over and over and over and read it aloud, leave it for a while, read it aloud again and again and again until it just seems to flow so so i wasn't kind of submitting right up to the deadline actually i you know it was written a long time before that in order to have time to edit i don't want to dwell on changes that you might make it did feel like a great <laughs> story but now that you have had juliet read it is there something specifically you would change because it's juliet reading it does that make sense yeah <laughs> Well, for the audio book, it's your chance now. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Final edits. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my okay. head. I'm that was not a mean, sure. That was a cool yeah. question. Sorry. It's a very um, mean question. Yeah. Um, Shall we talk about um, origins? I don't... Um, because it, when I first read it, I was... And it's interesting, in the context of some of the other stories, that it was the kind of darkness of, of children and their imagination. And this is an argument that was had recently over a Jake and Dinos Chapman work in the summer exhibition I had with someone... Um, and people take great offence. It's one of the great taboos that you depict children as violent or sexualised mm -hmm. beings. Um, so the darkness struck me, but there's obviously humour there too, and that was uh, was brought out beautifully. But I was also struck that sometimes the victims of of, of, of abuse, um, there's a sense of wanting revenge, and I wondered whether there was a cathartic. I don't mean personally, but I mean there is something cathartic about hearing children gain revenge on a brutal adult. Yeah, definitely. And it was quite interesting listening to the audience. There was, I knew it was quite a dark story. Uh, you know, bad things happen. Actually, bad things happen in most of my stories. Um, but it was quite interesting hearing people respond to it and how much kind of laughter there was at the beginning, and then that kind of slowly fades. Um, so that was that was what I planned. But you know, when you've read your own story so many times, you can't tell if it works like that. So that was quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's 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 good to hear children get their revenge. Why shouldn't yeah. they? Uh, Elizabeth referred to it when we were speaking about it. You referred to it as a modern gothic tale, which I think is sums it up perfectly. I think yeah. actually. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I just think maybe, because I know we're a little bit pressed for time, maybe it might be time to open Just up. one more oh, question. Yeah, so why, why not, but why set in the 50s? Um, that was just, often it's kind of the, the characters that come to me and the location, so that that kind of house was really uh, strong in my mind. And it just seemed to fit. I, I don't think, well, I don't really plan my writing. I just have some characters in a place, drop them in it and see what they do. Um, and it just, that just kind of came about and then it all fitted together. I'm not sure that there was any logical reason for the 50s. Mm. Yeah. And actually, I have one more question as well now, of course. But um, <laughs> um, you write short stories, but you also write you know, full novels as well. Yeah. Um, and we were talking a little bit before about the difference between those two. And not all short story writers necessarily write novels as well. Perhaps you could talk just a little bit about the difference between the two for you personally mm. and what you know, makes 
a good short story and yeah. the difference in those two things? Well, a short story can go all sorts of places that a novel can't necessarily, or if it does, it has to take a longer time to get there, obviously. But uh, you can, I think you can kind of be more experimental in a short story, or I can, mm -hmm. in the way that I write. I can let all sorts of crazy things happen and just see where it goes. Where a novel, although I don't particularly plan, it has to have perhaps a bit more logic behind it. Um, sometimes things work as a short story, and then they uh, kind of inspire a longer, a longer piece for me, a novel. Um, so they're kind of interchangeable. Well, no, no, they're not interchangeable. They're not. But they're, they are. Oh, I'm not very. But they have a, rela they have a relationship well. to each other. <laughs> certainly do. for you, anyway. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. But is it possible, as you find the location, you have your characters? I mean, it's a nice description of process or journey. That even though you were writing a short story. Has there been occasions where you think, actually, no, this isn't, this is a, a novel, that uh, this, this is then going to expand? Or paradoxically, do you sometimes start a novel and it, you realise you want to truncate it or, or you, uh, reduce it, distill it into a short story? Or are they two completely different processes for you? Um, no, they are similar. I've never had the case where I've started a novel and I think, no, this isn't big enough. But I've, I often have, I write a lot of flash fiction, very, very short stories, 100 mm. words or so. And an awful lot of those, I think, oh, this has the uh, capacity to become a novel. Um, I, I just can kind of see the place and the characters and what, what might happen to them feels quite expansive. Um, that happens a lot. So it's not... I'm not stuck for ideas. I'm kind of stuck for time. <laughs> <laughs> so are we. We should throw it to the floor. <laughs> and I, there's also one thing which might be of relevance to everyone here as well, is that I learnt... Yeah, recently that you also make art and sculpture and so the, the, so the connection between writing and art you know seems sort of perfect really for the context here <laughs> and for what Pinchot's about but it was something I didn't know when we read the story and, I, and uh, so it's an interesting additional dimension to you and maybe you can you know maybe when you're speaking to the audience talk a little bit about that connection for you at least yeah. between art and, and literature. Um, well, no, so, yeah. do, do you sketch I mean is, is, is painting making sculpture sketching a completely separate process, or is it part of the exploration of character, theme, context? I mean, do you sketch the house, the garden? I'm mean, very literal in that way. Or do, you, do abstract forms crystallise and give ideas for, for writing? No, I do see them as two different processes, completely different. Um, but some, when I've thought about that some more, I think I do make art in the same way as I write, in that I make art without any plans. I have a lump of stone and I start carving it and see what comes out and then I might stop and look at it and, and kind of follow that, follow that journey. And I, I think I write the same way, but one doesn't really inform the other. To me, they're two separate things. I'm trying to think of the Michelangelo idea of the stone in which the sculpture is imprisoned it's and the, the process is to reveal <laughs> well, that. That, sounds, that works for literature. It sounds not. very romantic, that. But that, does, that is how I, how I carve. It does, mm. There's something in there and you kind of find it. Final question. Does, is um, A Quiet, Tidy Man a fully self-contained work or does it suggest or has it suggested, if not sequences, other stories? In other words, how serial... 
Uh, how serial are you uh, in the way, rather than um, surreal, are you yeah. in the way you approach it? <laughs> I'd like to know the answer as well, because we can do more. <laughs> so. um, and I don't think I'm serial at all. It's completely self-contained, and I feel like it finishes there. I don't even know, you know, obviously there, something else happens at the very end of that story, but I don't know what it is. To me, it completely finishes there. Yeah. On which note... Great. Thank you so yes. much for I mean, having a kind of sandwich between Simon and I uh, <laughs> for writing um, an extraordinary story. Thank you to your, your fellow writers um, for, for their submissions. They were, they were all extraordinarily good works of literature. And Juliet Stevenson again, thank you so much. Let's all go and have a drink. Thank you all. Yes. <laughs>